Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rulemakers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Here it is. Happy New Year. End of the holiday season. 41 bowl games. Ready for the NFL playoffs. NASCAR break. Golf break. Tennis break. Hockey. Winter classic. Basketball. All-star. But that's in the future. Let's talk about what happened in 2016. I've got some items. Our digital world intergalactic poobah he told me not to do that again but i'm sorry that's my christmas present for for it's one time you'll get one you'll make a new year's resolution to not do it again oh how about that? well i'll wait for new year's all right 2016 five issues of mine and then you'll tell me if i forgot any five to one number five from international sports perspective and that's what we're talking about by the way brexit big news in 2016 european union's got to get its act together but maybe it's better for south american soccer but a lot of uncertainty for european sports because the balance of power may shift away from europe because of the uncertainty involved in brexit you've covered a lot of this internationally now what does that mean be clear with me what does that mean and i get brexit is a huge thing and i get there's going to be all kinds of barriers up to product and rights and broadcast and all that. But what is going to be the, the real nut, nuts and bolts of the Brexit impact on sports? Yeah, well, European soccer competitive balance should level out if the Brexit-caused restrictions prove as tough as many expect. The European Union paradigm will mix everything up for the EPL's clubs, players' age, uh, nationality, and, by the way, heads up to rugby and cricket fans, too, because that could impact. We don't know, but the prediction is that there will be a lot more restrictions as far as U.K. sports in the coming months. Are there, are there exchange rate issues, too, like in the U.S. and Canada when it comes to the NHL? Yeah, exchange rate issues as it relates to player transfers. That's a very mm -hmm. good point as well. Right. And as we know with mm -hmm. uncertainty, economically everywhere, the more uncertainty, the more difficult it is to get some business done. So the European Premier League, as well as cricket and rugby, may be in for some hard times. Sponsorship deals, I imagine, tougher to, tougher to get if, you, if you're blocked out of doing business in one part or the other. It becomes more expensive uh, in the U.K. as opposed to in the E.U., um, I guess that's, a, that's an issue, too, for all the big-name uh, EPL sponsors. Quite an interesting comment, and probably the global game coming into uncertainty. Yeah. Again, the most important issue right now is not what the restrictions are, but what they could be. So to me, that's number five. Number four, if you guys haven't come up with a gift for your sweetie yet, by the way, you're out of luck because it's a week late. <laughs> but it's gifting in an experience economy Live events taking center stage. StubHub just released its annual year in live events report. Cubs World Series win, Hamilton, Adele, not just sports and entertainment. Everybody is giving live events as a gift now, and the experience economy is taking over. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. There's only so many Scottsdale Scorpion hats to go around. And the, the issue for gifts, especially around sporting events, is that, let's be cliche and say, the a husband or a boyfriend or a dad wants to go to that Cubs playoff game that they've been waiting since, you know, the invasion of Normandy to get to. You know, that becomes a worthwhile gift and a special thing that I mean that right. that would be good if I were a Chicago fan. That would be good for like birthday, wedding anniversary and Christmas to me. That would take care of three gifts. 
with no problem. Like one Cubs playoff game, one Cubs World Series game, that would be a gimme. But I think live experience, it just shows you that, you know, it's, it's uh, life imitating business in that how the live experience have become so important economically to the venues, to the leagues, to the, to the, to the TV broadcast deals. They've equally become now important on an individual level. It's kind of a little bit of a virtuous circle in terms of business, right? Well, yeah, and it's empirical as well. So when StubHub came out with its report, the top 10 best-selling events of the year, all sporting events, uh, Super Bowl 50, a big deal by up 7%, that World Series, which is exactly what you just talked about, um, Kobe's retirement tour, uh, mm. you've had, uh, you know, which is kind of interesting as well, Peyton Manning's retirement tour, UFC taking its first match to New York City. Copa America Centenario International oh, NFL that's right, game. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. One. yeah. So a, a lot of a lot of big things. And by the way, and, and you know, we're not just talking about sports here, but it's Adele, it's Hamilton, and so interesting to see how these events happen as a start 2016. But listen, if you know your uh, significant other loves a sports or entertainment event, here is my gift tip for 2017. Get them tickets. Get them tickets. Uh, you can get me, by the way. The Baham- when is that Bahama Bowl coming up? Are you send me to the Bahamas for uh, Christmas? The Bahama Bowl is a great gift for you. Unfortunately, <laughs> the bad news is it happened last Friday. But that's okay. Next year. It's okay. There's that's always right. next year. Next year. You and I will go to the Bahama Bowl. Maybe they'll have a game in Havana, Dynamite. which is another issue for another day. All right. So that's number four. Here's number three. The year of the NFL TriCast, digital streaming, shared rights, and more. You know, a lot of people talking about what it means for uh, the NFL's ratings, fantasy, uh, presidential debates, content cannibalization, the NFL uh, in more places over saturation, or maybe it's just we're measuring it differently and more people are looking at different kind of devices. What say you? I think that the TriCast theory uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think that I don't know if more people are watching in different places, but I certainly think that there's an audience that's growing into the NFL and growing into their spending prime that needs to be reached. And it's, they're not being reached on CBS and they're not being reached by Fox and they're not, certainly not being reached by Thursday night football, whatever that is. So I think the idea is that you, you need to go, you need to fish where the fish are, you know, and I think the fish right now are in social realms. They're in the fantasy realm that don't care about the game per se. And they care more about, you know, pockets of it or the granularized scoring plays. Uh, and I think that I think it's a significant business revelation. I don't know that the NFL is going to be able to adjust fast enough. I don't think they've been particularly quick to it. Where, look at MLB. I mean, MLB is so good at it that they've spun off their, their web division, right? Um, it's, it's a huge private company, and it's a huge technology company. And the NFL is, I mean, is, is the best the NFL can do is streaming on Twitter? That's, I, I worry that the NFL is a step slow, as they say, and I think it's a big move this year, and I think it's an important business thing this year. I think next year is actually the more important execution year and the more important monetization year for that whole TriCast idea. Well, you know, you probably are one of the top five, certainly top ten guys that can speak about this in the whole world, given what you're doing with Reuters. Is it a half-empty or half-full issue with the NFL? Is it that they haven't reached their potential, but there's a lot more to do? Or is it the fact that these games that had the lowest ratings in the last 10 years really mean that less people are watching the NFL? I don't think that it's a glass half full. I mean, I don't think the NFL has if, – if the NFL were a draft pick, I don't think it would have a high ceiling. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think the NFL – is what it is right now. It's it's it, but that's because of its success. You know, it has come far in the last fifteen or twenty years, right? Uh, as an enterprise, so I think there's an issue now where they have to start to 
use the whole buffalo. You know, they have to they have to get more out of the content they that they have, and I think fantasy has helped, and I think they need to exploit that a little bit more, and they need to figure out a home and a real contemporary, cutting-edge delivery mechanism for the Internet. Because at this point, I just don't feel like it's an alternative. Well, and by the way, I think all the listeners will take comfort in the fact that one of the international superstars on center stage here, Dan Calaruso, just referred to the vertically integrated devices uh, that we have now to deal with as, quote-unquote, the whole buffalo. So I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) The buffalo, by the way, needs to be made whole because of the rights holders, because of stadiums and arenas, and because of the entire sports industry, and this whole idea of decouching. Are people watching on the couch? Are they going to stadiums? We need to measure. We need to figure out who's watching what. Don't you agree? Where, where are you finding those? Where, where are you finding those, those viewers? I mean, people are busier, right? If, you're, if your fan is, you know, mid-30s, if your big spending fan is, let's say, 26 to 50, well, they're having kids and they're going around to dance recitals and soccer games and a whole bunch of other things, and you need to get them when they're on the move, and you need to get their attention and keep their attention, keep an engagement period that's substantive enough for you to, to monetize via your advertising or whatever branding you have around it. Live football is great. You have tailgating, but you know in the north in the in the northeast, it's not so much fun after Thanksgiving. You know, um, so the idea that the, being able to reach them when they're in the act of doing something else, like how do you pick up a a corner of that multitasking user? And that's I think that's going to be the key part. And they have to do they have to, I think they have to do better at it. I mean, it, as well as they do it now, I think is I think right now they're t- at table stakes. They need a breakthrough. They need a real, real technological technological breakthrough to make it come to life a little bit more. Totally, completely agree. And I think at the end of the day, uh, Roger Goodell nor anybody in the staff should be defensive about this uh, less watching over-the-top television Thursday night games and say these are the best matchups we can get. Maybe we say let's do some technological innovation, like you said, so everybody can watch and everybody can be measured. Right. Well, you dance with the girl who brung you, and then and the TV ratings had done so well, and the stadium rights had done so well for the for the NFL. Well, it's it's hard. You get in a defensive as a business, you're in a defensive crouch, right? You don't want to give up one for the other. You don't know if there's enough. If there's another pot of gold at the end of a Twitter rainbow, right? You don't know where to go, so you got to make sure you do something that's enhancement, that's an enhancement, uh, but doesn't again cannibalize and doesn't threaten, you know, that that real premium experience that you have going somewhere, even if that premium experience is on the downside of its growth curve. Yeah, and another Colorusarian comment: dance with the girl who brung you, even if it's a buffalo, and that's number three. <laughs> nice. But let's go to the 2016 presidential election. That's my second story. Many maintain that sports and politics don't meet or shouldn't meet, but (laughs) yeah, it's meeting. The U.S. Soccer Federation was going to joint venture a Mexico bid for 2026 World Cup, the 2024 Olympic Games. Does Trump scare everybody? On the other hand, uh, does his business acumen help everybody? What about his golf courses? How do you come out on all this? Look, you know, I hadn't thought of the U.S.-Mexico alliance uh, as, as part of a ramification of the election. This election has so many ramifications at this point. Um, how does it affect Cuban baseball players? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of tangential ones. Um, there's monopoly things. Um, if, you know, if big deals, if big mergers are, are scotched by the Trump administration, does that hurt 
stadium naming rights market. I, mean, I think there's a whole host of issues that, that you can deal with here and say, you know, the election, the fallout from the election will have this. But simply the effect of the election and, and what people put on it as, as stealing from the NFL's ratings, from, a, from just taking up all the oxygen in the media consumption room um, for, for, you know, for the better part of a year, um, had a tremendous impact. And I think, you know, if you're Roger Goodell, let's say, or if you're the NBA, let's say, and you're facing, you know, ratings that are a little soft, you know, things that you're not really sure what it is, this has been that weird kind of black swan flying through your thing. And, and, and how do you figure it out? You need another year now to figure out whether it was the election, whether it was the economy, whether it was your product. And, and that's the tough part. So, I, I, look, I, I don't know if I'd rate it as high as you did. Um, I might put Brexit higher than you, um, but I would say that it certainly was a roadblock in calibrating where true fan um, interest is laying right now and where you're going to get them. And I think it, it holds back a lot of development for a couple of years because there's we really don't know what to expect from this administration. And I think it's interesting on a corporate side and interesting on a um, you know on a individual economic uh, side. Men's golf has a U.S. Open that's uh, scheduled for a Trump course. By the way, the LPGA uh, has uh, has courses there. The the uh, World Golf Championship moves from a Trump course to Mexico. Those are all smaller, relatively collateral issues. But your point is right that maybe it is too high. But I guarantee you, for the 2017 list, which we'll do next week, it's going to be high because uncertainty certainly is a big deal here. And I guess we're all going to have to watch. Last year. Fantasy ads carried the day, DraftKings and FanDuel. This year, all the political ads. I don't know what people are going to do next year. Right, and think about it like this. Think about if Disney wants to make a big, accretive media deal. The Trump administration has shown signs, at least, uh, on the campaign trail of being against these big deals and saying they're monopolistic. You know, so... Does, can Disney make that deal? If it needs that deal to make ESPN a little more powerful and a little better position to buy more rights going forward or, or do more of what its eventual mission is, can it do that? Can it do that effectively? Is it going to cost them an extra $100 million in legal fees and you know, haranguing? So that's, that's kind of the, the other side of it that I don't think we've talked about much, but I think that's, that's the, the, the secondary sports economy really having a little bit of a a little bit of uncertainty over it. Yeah, and I think something tells me we're not done with this and we're going to have a lot of this kind of discussion, uh, you and me, uh, on this uh, show in 2017. All right, here's my number one. After 108-year wait, an incredible game, 17-minute rain delay, late finish, huge TV ratings, 40 million TV sets, Theo Epstein, the Cubs' first World Series win since 2000, and since 1908, and then he did it with the Red Sox years before. $200 million of economic impact, 5 million people at a downtown parade. It is not only the biggest sports story of the year, it is the biggest sports story of the history of the universe, and I'm a Cub fan, so I'm defining it that way, and I don't really care what you say. <laughs> I, look, I, I'm, uh, I'm with you, uh, except on the history of the universe. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, if we're going to go back to sports business stories, I'll go back to Muhammad Ali uh, being stripped of his belt. Um, but... Um, we can say that it was by far the defining story of the year. It was a good story. It was a positive story. It was a team with a lot of homegrown, young, fresh-faced talent, not a ton of scandal around it. Um, Theo Epstein, the legend of Theo Epstein grows longer. A great American city gets a champion. It's historic. It's patriotic. It's everything you want baseball to be. And I, I got to tell you, 
uh, go back to the NFL for a second. If I'm Roger Goodell, man, I'm hating the Cubs right now because that Cubs run, again, through, mid, through early November, that's the only thing anybody wanted to know about. And, and it really set the tone for that, that postseason baseball being magical. Um, and I think it, 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 again, shifted itself um, in a way to become a national news story. And it, it sets a tone, like, do people look at the Cubs now and say, that's how we have to build? How many, you know, they always talk about coaching trees in the NFL. The Theo Epstein tree is growing, right? And how many more of, you know, how many more teams are going to start to model themselves after the Cubs economically? You can do it if you're in a big market. Can you do it in Pittsburgh? And that's, to me, that's kind of the, the thing that will hang over um, into the year from a business point of view. Um, what, what does that mean to you economically if you can put a winner in a place where there hasn't been one in a long time. And I think it's, uh, it was a great story. I mean, there's no – I'm a Mets fan. I mean, I, there are a few teams I dislike more than the Cubs. Um, but, boy, oh, boy, it was great to watch. Well, and not only that, I think you are absolutely right, by the way, and, and this is exactly right on to what this means from a business perspective, is that even the casual fan follows the Chicago Cubs and, uh, you know, the Cubs are heroes on late-night talk shows. But now – People understand what it took to build a winner and how you have young players and you keep them under the salary manageable number and then you let them grow into arbitration and your six-year plan and your eight-year plan. All of that stuff uh, people didn't care about before, but if it means building the Cubs, they certainly care about it. So it's going to be more and more and more interesting in 2017 and beyond, quite clearly. The building of a dynasty, does it happen, does it not? I guess we'll have to see. So that's my list, 5-1, to one, but I know you got other well, stuff. Well, let me, let me just say one more thing about the Cubs, because I think there's an interesting thing that, we, that you, you said something, and it kind of clicked, that, you know, there's so few commonalities um, with how Americans consume, the stories Americans read and consume. Um, you know, they talk about Johnny Carson not being around anymore. So America has nothing in common. There's nothing that all of America gravitates to. And I think that's what the Cubs became. And that's a tremendous opportunity from a business point of view to be the one thing um, that America is focused on. And it's not going to be over a whole year. It's going to be over three months. It's going to be over four months. But it is a tremendous opportunity for you to then build an economy around that. Um, whether it's sponsors, whether it's networks, whether it's social networks in some way, shape, or form, you know, you know, like secondary social networks, there's a tremendous opportunity here to be that point of conversation in America. And I think that that's where you go. You know, that's what the Cubs were. The Cubs became Johnny Carson in a time when we have no central point of attention. The irony, I guess, is the Cubs come from behind 3-1 to one on the road and win. The Cavaliers come from behind four months earlier, 3-1 to one on the road and win, and rally a city after years when people didn't think so. So does that lead into one of your big stories? Have I stolen your thunder? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is 1B to, um, to the Cubs 1. And I, I think I hadn't cared about the NBA for a while. Now, admittedly, I'm in a, in a town where the two NBA teams aren't particularly good. I hadn't cared about the NBA in a while. I think Steph Curry, LeBron James, is the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird to get the NBA back to where it was. I mean, we became a little saturated with the NBA, a few too many DUIs, a few too many coaching changes, like uh, salaries, like the whole thing was bizarre. But now, you know, you have Curry, you have LeBron, you know, different types of heroes for their cities. You know, San Francisco, you could argue, is the best sports town in America right now. Durant went there. Um, that's interesting. And I think this sets it up, and they've been in the finals with the last two years, right? 
I think we're going to see this become the, a rivalry that redefines the league, and America will divide itself <laughs> into the LeBron James camp and the Steph Curry camp. And I think it's great for basketball because basketball, there's, there are a lot of teams. You need galvanizing personalities. You have a different types of, like, it's old economy in Cleveland, new economy in, in San Francisco. Uh, that's great, great stuff. Um, that goes beyond a rivalry, just like Boston, you know, blue-collar Boston against Showtime. That becomes, again, something that draws in the casual fan and gets them affected. That draws in the kids because it gives them superheroes and gets them, you know, builds that lifelong bond that turns into, over a lifetime, you know, $10,000 in tickets, you know, $300 in jerseys and apparel and you know, two hundred dollars in hats. So it, it's a really interesting. Um, not to mention, like you know, pay-per-view games or or the the NBA tickets on on the satellite things. So I think you have a great defining rivalry now, and I think the NBA needed it. It couldn't have come. It was not a moment too soon. I think the NBA needed it, and I think it moves the NBA into a a little bit of a of a pole position for the for the rest of this decade uh, via the versus the NFL, the NHL, and and Major League Baseball even. And, and, and I would yield to you, and, and there you have it, our 5-1, to one, uh, Brexit 5, uh, the, uh, the live game experience of StubHub Study 4, the digital TriCast and streaming is 3, Trump uh, and the impact is 2, and 1 and 1A, one uh, what the Cubs have meant to Chicago, what Cleveland, uh, what the uh, uh, Cavaliers have meant not only to Cleveland but the NBA, and the NBA has a quite an interesting issue, just a quick transition. I was in Oklahoma City last week, and uh, t- uh, Tim uh, uh, McLaughlin, who is the head of Fields and Futures, has a really interesting plan we decided to talk about over the holidays, sports empowering kids to dream big, took his own private fundraising for 44 fields and 15 schools, and the theory is fields and sports means grades improving, less dropouts, higher earnings, less prison population, less obesity, less homelessness, and he's made the number stick. It is quite an incredible opportunity. It's Oklahoma City, the project called Fields and Futures. It becomes a template for national stories all over. Tim McLaughlin, the CEO of the organization, Dan Colarusso, have a really, really happy holiday. Happy New Year. See you in 2017. Happy New Year to you, Rick. Thanks. And now, Tim McLaughlin. Philanthropy something really special over the holiday, one city's dream that's turned into what's going to be a national template. And you heard it here first. McLaughlin family, Tim and his wife Liz, very interested in fields and futures. Before I could continue, the longest successful businessman involved with the University of Oklahoma and very essential commitment to help build the city of Oklahoma City and even more important things that are going on with fields and schools and education and on and on and on. But We want Tim to chime in. Tim, why don't you give us your elevator speech about what Fields and Futures is and where it is today? Well, the uh, purpose of Fields and Futures is to grow participation in athletics. Uh, We feel that um, if we can get a kid on a team, then uh, we can can get them on a path uh, to be successful. Um, And that's, we're running stats on that now, and uh, that's been, that's proving out. You know, we always had that hunch, but the fact now that that is proving out is very exciting and it really kind of boils back down to well let's provide them the facilities let's give them what the suburban schools have they'll come out it's a build it they will come thing yeah but the build it and come they model always is high visibility at the end of the rainbow it's interesting because people all over the world talk about building fields trying to get kids to play in them 
but it's not necessarily an economically viable proposition. And as a private sector entity, why is this so essential for you to do as an Oklahoman? You have matches with the school board, you're involved with the city, key sponsors as well. Oklahoma City certainly does it right. We know that from a variety of programs in their history. But give us some ideas into this business. And because this is a business show, give us some insight in how you're doing it. Yes, it is, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing for a city to do, no doubt, due to the fact there's so many things pulling at the, at the city to, you know, over the streets, uh, to the bridges, to, to all that. And that, of course, gobbles up and, and the education system by itself. So we're, we're pretty fortunate in Oklahoma. There's a lot of folks that are very proud of Oklahoma City, and there's been a lot of uh, great things happen in this city. But one of the areas that we haven't done as uh, great a job on is, is the education side of it. And what we found, if we can get, again, these kids on a sports team, well, they have to come to school to go to practice. You have to make your grades to play in the game. And then there's a graduation rate side of things. So <clears throat> when you can go around and speak, have that conversation with business leaders in this community and then realize it's your future workforce, too, yeah. and the benefits of the fact that, hey, if you are a part of a team, you've had to learn to work with people in that huddle. You aren't moving that ball down that field if you aren't working with those folks in that huddle. So... I think that's the attraction for the business side of things is people realize this is a piece that gets graduation rates, that keeps life lessons <clears throat> so it'll be employable, and also gets them graduated and uh, will be a positive on the on the economy versus versus a poll. Do you have the numbers to share with us, a couple of bedrock metrics, graduation rates, dropout reduction, and how they're incrementally enhanced by fields and all of the other goals that you put together as part of this overall package. We just received some uh, some of that that information uh, from the school district that we work with, the OMC school district, and uh, it was very encouraging. And uh, bottom line, a, uh, we sorted the uh, the 1,700 students out by uh, student athletes versus non-student athletes. The student athletes had double digits more days in school. Again, you got to go to practice. They also had a, a higher GPA, a 2.82 versus a 2.11. Um, talk about that later but mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. fact that there's that that, yeah. uh, that big right. of a difference of but the, the big one uh, that we're all striving for the graduation rate for a student athlete is 99 percent versus a 77 percent and you can talk to our district attorney and our police chief on what happens with those 23 percent that are not graduating um, so well obviously a successful businessman you're successful in Oklahoma and what initially turned you on not only to think about fields but also what to do about it? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. We were, uh, I think it's influences in your life, yeah. first off, and then we had an opportunity uh, with the Wes Welker Foundation. Yeah. We're, we're good friends with the Welker Foundation. They do some amazing work in our city. And they invited my wife and I to uh, kind of go on a bus tour and look at some of the projects uh, that they were looking at potentially funding. And when you, you know, so we thought, yeah, well, that's a great idea. It's better than going to work for the day. I'm mm -hmm. going to go hang out and mm -hmm. enjoy that. But, um, <clears throat> Bottom line, after you started seeing the conditions of things and then having the life influences you have, um, you are sitting here looking at these facilities going, well, what kind of message are you sending to these kids? Because mm -hmm. this is rocks and glass and cracked earth, and honestly, our horse pastures are in better shape mm -hmm. than most of these playing fields were. And then knowing that, you know, through our own kids, through uh, our kids' teammates that we've seen, how if you're on a team, again, you got to make your grades you got to do yeah. you get you get leveraged you know those parents will leverage yeah. you to do the right things those teachers leverage you because they know those they can those teachers can go tell those coaches yeah. that uh, he's not on the, on the right track so and then looking at what participation rates were uh in the LC school district which is our largest district in the state 
Um, it was below 30%, a national average for public school participation in uh, athletics should be at 55%. So you take that 55% with a less than 30%, you put it on our largest school district, there's 3,500 more kids should be playing sports than are not. And then you factor on top of that, all right, they come, have to come to school, you know how to make your grades, and uh, you're going to graduate, you know, when you get that 99% deal. So that's what drives you when you look at the, right. the scope and what the what the end goal is. There. Most people get driven into a nice conversation and leave it alone and tell anybody else they need to do fields. It's somebody else's responsibility. What drove you to this process to create fields? 44 of them at the current tally, about 15 schools, maybe more. This wasn't clearly just an afterthought, so this was the McLaughlin family getting into action mode. When did it start and how? Well, I think we wanted to have the litmus test first. So back on that tour uh, with, with the Wes Welker Foundation, we went to Jefferson Middle School. Uh, Wes had, had purchased uh, $25,000 worth of football equipment, and uh, which was fantastic. But then we went, well, let's go look at the field where they play on. <clears throat> so we walked out there, and, you know, I, our definition yeah, sure. of a field is not what their definition yeah, yeah, was. <clears throat> and uh, so we just kind of – and we built some soccer fields. We have some land where we live, and we built some soccer fields for our kids so they could practice out there. So basically I didn't have to drive everywhere, and everybody would come to me. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, worked yeah. out pretty right, good. Right. <laughs> but uh, So I had the know-how, and I fortunately uh, have some very good friends that are uh, have a lot of heavy construction equipment and, and big hearts and, and know what that means. So we wanted to do a litmus test. We took Jefferson Middle School yeah. and wanted to find out, will this work? You know, if we build it, will they come? So that was about 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, right? We kind of founded in 2011, started construction in 12. Obviously, there's the proof of concept, but how do you get from there to where you are now? How do you scale it? Well, scale is, uh, you know, it's good to have uh, good marketing people yeah, to right. tell the story, right. but the, get some good pictures, yep. uh, and really just capture the stories because the stories are there. After we finished that first complex, um, the uh, district uh, athletic director gave me a cause in a meeting, and I couldn't take it. He's texting me and texting me over and over, and I thought, I have to excuse myself from this meeting. So I finally came out of the meeting, called him back, and he, he said, did you did you see those pictures I sent you? I said, no, I haven't got to look at them. Well, I'm at the, at the Jefferson Middle School. There is a girls' soccer game going on, and there's a boys' baseball game going on. Do you realize I couldn't find a parking spot? Do you realize that... These kids have not had home games in decades here. Yeah. Do you realize, look at the pictures of all the people on the sidelines rooting these kids on. Yeah. These parents have never been to this, or there's a good chance a lot of these parents have not been to this school. So now they're meeting the teachers, starting to get involved in the school. And that's kind of what takes, what ends up happening. So I remember getting off the phone after having that conversation with Key Sinar and uh, talked to my wife that evening. I said, I think we need to do them all. And uh, she was gracious enough to say, I think you're right. Yeah, well, both of you made a very positive combination. The school board is a partner, just to give us an idea. You had a deal with, you raised the dollars for the capital side of this through fundraisers and, and benefits and charitable contributions. And school board also helped you with long-term maintenance. Uh, Cal Ripken in as a presenter and motivational speaker. But the primary focus around holiday time was to raise money for this goal. That's correct. Uh, they uh, once we've completed a project, then they do a ten thousand dollar match. It's usually you know it's about a twenty thousand dollar you know per complex depending on the shape of the uh, the uh, the fields. But 
they also, on the build side of it, they're able to uh, allocate um, they have a, a bond for fence building, and so they do the majority of the fencing, anywhere from 70, well, usually it's about a 75,000. And the other piece that I didn't really uh, answer earlier for you, too, is it's fantastic to go, y you need matches. You know, you get that right. match, that sure. gives momentum, and there's a, uh, we have one gentleman that uh, gives us a $50,000 before we, you know, every complex we walk into, we've already got that 50000 plus the seventy five from the school district. So we're starting there, and then we start building off of that. So what you're really doing is creating a template and creating a structure that's available not only to finish all the fields in Oklahoma City, but potentially in other cities in the state or even nationally, huh? I think uh, we, we bring in some national speakers, and uh, that is a message each one of them has said. Bobby Bowden, Herman yeah, Words right. have, have both come in, and their their comments were, this, this plays out in every every city in the United States and then could be doing things along these lines. And I'm sure there's lots of those type of things going on. Uh, but the fact is the need is there, no doubt. Obviously, by way of full disclosure, we're sitting in a car outside of my hotel in a freezing Oklahoma City after hearing Cal Ripken in a lunch speech doing a dinner benefit that Tim and his wife are coordinating actually to raise the dollars uh, about the benefits of this foundation and where you're going with it on the capital side. So no administrative costs. This is a labor of love. And the bottom line dollars basically go right to the construction of the fields, correct? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. And we have a, uh, and that was, that's nice too, is uh, I'm kind of a little bit of a salesman, but I'm kind of a lazy salesman. So I want the ultimate pitch. And so yeah. we were able to secure a, a grant that uh, provides all of our administration and our marketing. So I'm able to tell a potential donor that every penny that you donate goes to the field project. So in theory, the template is to get structured as you have a private business person like Tim McLaughlin in another city. And it would make some sense to see if the teams, leagues, sponsors, and others could follow a structure where it's kind of a matching formula, local sponsors, their commitments from the local school board, and the politicians buying in, which ought to be easy if it looks like it's a guaranteed success. But this has really found private money that helped kickstart the recreation and school budget. Basically, every city in the country may, may need this, uh, right? Absolutely. It's, it really becomes kind of a stone soup. And ladies and gentlemen, this is interesting because you know my passion in getting the MAPS development plan going in 1993 in Oklahoma City with nine separate sports, arts, and recreational facilities and Mayor Ron Norick leading to Mayor Mick Cornett, who is now the head of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We'll have more from him on an ongoing basis. But the next step in many of these projects is the uh, unfulfilled promise of getting the maintenance done and the capital done. So what's been the hardest part of your process here and you look back and have significant pride over the last few years obviously well i think we're getting a little bit of a, uh, a snapshot of that currently um you know again our goal is to have that 55 percent participation and, and be with the national average on on the public school in the, in the athletics but then what we're finding is um there's there was no little leagues in these areas of town also which then kids were you know the kids want to be a part of something so let's give them some positive options to be a part of. So <clears throat> I think that uh, we've now started a kind of the inkling of things to come. We're in our second year of a uh, youth league that we've created. So once we build the facilities in these neighborhoods, then there's about a uh, three-mile radius that kind of feeds into these facilities that there's about eight elementary schools. And we mainly build these in the junior highs and the high schools. So um, <clears throat> having that... that uh, oh, I guess that base yeah. that we can now base a league out of, we started that little league, and we're in that second year uh, of that, and that has grown exponentially. So as we 
on board uh, another side of town or that's got another three mile radius, then we plug that next eight schools into the Little League. And uh, I think right now we're, uh, we've got 24 of the 55 elementary schools are part of the, uh, the league. And uh, the numbers, uh, we're starting uh, girls and boys basketball here shortly. And uh, that has gone from um, uh, 250 last uh, season to 500 this year. We're about to roll into spring soccer, and uh, that will be boys and girls uh, spring soccer. We had 500 last year. We're gonna we've science already coming. I think we're gonna have a thousand. And again, we've only at 24 of the 55 schools, so we're anxious to get the next fields built so we can bring another eight schools in and, and expand from here. Tim, thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.